in this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast. And in reality, you know, we're, we're sort of told these, these kind of tropes, which is that fiber is essential um, for a healthy gut. Um, you know, fat in general, animal products are bad, you know, particularly if we're talking about risk of colorectal cancer and, and things like that. You then sort of dig into the literature, the evidence for that isn't great. And it, you know, focuses on just very specific populations. So like mice in general eat a high carbohydrate diet and the strain of mouse in which the vast majority of all biomedical research is done, it's called the black six, has been bred over time to respond negatively to a high fat diet. If you required a significant amount of fiber to always have a healthy gut, right? Just think about humans as they evolved. They just, we had to be really good at dealing with a wide range of food sources and sometimes not having any food at all. So if you want your gut to remain healthy in the absence of food, it has to be able to survive on something else. And that is going to be ketones from the, the peripheral circulation. Um, or, you know, when when humans migrated up into, into Northern Europe, there just aren't very many starchy carbohydrates in Northern Europe in the middle of winter. Um, yet our guts functioned just fine. My name is Jorge Roman, certified health coach and author of Return to Human. My goal with this podcast is pretty simple, to bring you both sides of the story in a world filled with cancel culture, where open conversation seems to be nearly impossible, especially in the sciences. By interviewing experts in the fields of evolutionary biology, neuroscience, metabolism, exercise physiology, epigenetics, and beyond, I hope to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thank you for joining me. Welcome everyone to the Live Damn Well podcast. My guest today is Dr. Tommy Wood, a UK trained medical doctor with a PhD in physiology and neuroscience. Dr. Wood is currently at the University of Washington as a research assistant professor of pediatrics. He has also published and spoken on multiple topics surrounding functional and ancestral approaches to health, including examining the root causes of multiple sclerosis, that's a mouthful, and insulin resistance. I'm very excited to share this conversation. I think it's probably one of the most comprehensive podcast episodes I've done so far. We talk about everything from athletic performance to the gut microbiome to do you even need fiber in your diet? Does the evidence support that? And much more. So I'm excited for you to learn and let's get right into it. Yeah, so let's just get right into it. I'm very excited to have you on, by the way. I've seen you uh, in Dr. Paul Saladino's podcast several times um, and uh, Dr. Chatterjee's podcast. So very excited to talk to you today. I think I really want to focus on um, the recent paper that you just did. Um, congratulations on that, by the way. It was a pretty amazing study to read through that. Uh, but first, I want to touch on... Um, athletic performance in athletes, because I know that you do quite a bit of work with athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and it fascinates me because I was an athlete for over 10 years. And the common misconception always is that the fitter you look, the more healthy that you are. And, you know, I've been on that side of the spectrum where I totally overtrained, I couldn't sleep. Um, 
you know, indigestion all the time. I couldn't ever eat enough calories because my stomach hurt all the time. So what are your thoughts about that and what you've seen? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's, it's an interesting dilemma as well, because, you know, as a, as a society, we don't move nearly enough. I think that that really contributes to a lot of the chronic disease that, that we see. Um, however, what we think is required, you know, for, you know, exercise to be useful or beneficial is training for marathons, uh, you know, these huge loads, like it's, you know, it's not a workout if you don't go out and run really hard for an hour. Um, and that's also uh, just really not true. Like the amount of exercise that you need to, to be healthy is probably less than you think, but you do still need to do it. Um, but those that do then engage in exercise, particularly um, particularly those who are, who are amateurs. And, you know, I was a, an amateur athlete in multiple sports for long periods of time. Um, and because this isn't your job and you're not taking, and you're not taking rest and recovery and maybe not nutrition seriously. And you're also thinking that you need to do more and more and more and more to be better and better and better. Um, then that really does potentially lead you down the path of, uh, multiple health problems so gut problems are very common um you know being in a significant caloric deficit you know for, for long periods of time and we know it, it 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 sort of it messes with so in women um it messes with cycles bone health mental health um you know now we are, are sort of an increasing appreciation that you see the same thing in men it's, it's called a relative energy deficiency of sport or reds or red s depending on who, who is who, who's saying it and um, this this causes you know a significant um, number number of problems. So I think um, then when you also sort of look at some of the the more elite uh, athletes, you know the pointy end of the professional uh, uh, sports uh, sphere, we know that. Or so, so one of the uh, one of my favorite phrases, which I've stolen from somewhere else, but I'm afraid I can't remember where I got it from, which is that athletes you know, some uh, elite professional athletes, they're very fit, right? They're incredibly fit for their chosen sport, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily healthy, right? Health being sort of the absence of um, gut problems or, uh, you know, other other chronic diseases and or hopefully, you know, living you know, uh, to be a, a long, you know, a, a long and, and healthy life. Right. Um, those two things are not necessarily synonymous. And, you know, sometimes that's fine. You know, you really have to, get yourself into a very specific uh, corner of performance to be the best in the world at, at a given sport. Um, but you also have to appreciate that there are maybe some trade-offs there, right? That, that yeah. sort of longer term, right? If you're, a, if you're um, a professional endurance athlete, you may end up with less muscle mass than maybe you would want for long-term health. Um, right. And, and then you know, and maybe there are other things that, that are going on, particularly in terms of in terms of gut health, like you mentioned, or or, or other aspects of, of physiology, and that's fine. So you make that sacrifice for that period of time. You know, if this is this is paying the bills. It's incredibly important. Uh, but then you know, maybe you need to appreciate a, a shift in your training or your lifestyle afterwards in order to recover some of those aspects of health. So it's it's never like a, a sort of a cut and dried thing, right? At any right. given time. Uh, you have to decide what's most important to you. And so sometimes, you know, even when it's not necessarily going to be healthy, 
you may need to uh, drop more body weight or increase your training volume or, you know, change how you how you eat, sleep and recover. Or maybe there's the travel aspect, which which can often really mess uh, with athletes health as well. But it's a necessary part of the sport. Um, so you take that into consideration, but then equally you try and, you know, balance that longer term. You know, so, so often you know, I work with athletes who want to be, you know, perform sort of a, a master's level or just be able to show up for the start line you know for decades right. to come and then you have to take it then you have to take a slightly different approach and you may sacrifice short-term performance for for, for long-term health um and that, that's yeah. fine too so so in reality you just need to appreciate that there are trade-offs in in all of these things and there's no one right answer but there is certainly um some potential risk with with taking a training and a nutritional approach that is used by elite athletes and then applying that to the general population um and that's where you often seem to see problems yeah no absolutely um what are the common hindrances that you know you see we talked a little bit about like gut health and sleep but what are some of the other ones that you see well in reality um you want to be able to do the the amount of exercise or training particularly if it's sport specific that you can then recover from right so mm -hmm. the the adage is that you don't get fitter or um stronger uh during the training right you, you you do that during recovery as the body adapts to the load that you put on it so then i mean the the, the biggest factors that come into play are total caloric balance and uh, and intake and and that does sometimes intersect with with gut health because you'll often see if um if you're in a energy deficit or uh, for various other reasons because of the effect of exercise on the gut particularly very high volumes and intensities can um damage the gut for want of a better word particularly in the in the short term which then makes it harder to digest you can get di digestive symptoms so just getting in enough calories is you know one of the most important things and um determining the caloric needs of an athlete, particularly an athlete that has a, quite a lot of muscle mass, is really hard. And you know, most you know most of the equations that we have to guesstimate how many calories you need really don't work uh, in that really? in that in that population. So you have to do a, a lot of trial and error, and also a lot of measurement and tracking over time in that in that population. So so calories important, sleep obviously uh, incredibly important. Although I think we're now getting to a point where we've kind of gone the other way. And we're just so keen to pathologize sleep. We want to track it. We want to get mm. all the. We want to get all the different sleep stages. And if we don't get it, then we're going to worry about it. Um, and and I think uh, what you what you see when you work uh, with with the, the elite athletes is often they don't want to know because they because they know they appreciate that sometimes the information can negatively affect them mentally, which then affects their performance. So as a coach, you may want to gather that data and look at it and you know see if you can tweak some stuff and i think that's that's beneficial but sometimes the athlete themselves shouldn't or doesn't want to know because it can it can affect their their mental performance so that's that's important too so so sleep right. and nutrition are incredibly important but then you know a lot of other stuff does come into play so if you think about something we might call total allostatic load which is just like what's the total load of all the stresses that you're putting on your body so sleep and caloric deficits and total training volume um, are incredibly important. So like making sure that the, the volume of the training program is, a, is appropriate for the athlete and, and tracking responses to that. Um, but then, you know, other, other stresses come in, come into play, right? Everybody has a, 
you know, maybe they have a, maybe you have another job, right? If you're not a professional athlete, you know, you have a family, you have other commitments. Um, I've certainly seen um, many amateur um, ultra endurance athletes who's, who really sacrifice a lot of, um, you know, the, the benefits of home life um, because of the amount of training and traveling that they're doing. And, you know, you know, you can do that if you have agreement from your family in, in the short term, but long term, that's definitely going to cause cause strain, which in itself is its own stressor. So, yeah, you know, com committing yourself to a sport in a way like that can be really difficult um, from like the, the family and uh, another standpoint as well. And for, for some athletes, that becomes a significant stressor, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you touched on something really interesting, which is, um, you know, being perfectionistic about sleep can in itself inhibit good sleep. And I've definitely noticed that in myself with like diet, you know, near like orthorexia type levels, you know, in myself at times where I'm like, if I don't eat the perfect thing, then it's like, oh, it's all gone to shit, you know? Yeah. And it's like, that's totally not the case. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, I'm up, was, I was absolutely the same, um, you know, 15, 16 years ago, something, something like that. Uh, and it took, it takes a while to sort of get out of that mindset sort of being continuously obsessed with the quality or the amount of food that's going in your mouth which that which like i said has its own negative effect so and 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 uh, to kind of um tie that into another area where we're seeing a huge amount of tracking which is potentially beneficial but then also detrimental for, for certain types of individuals is glucose monitoring um right and so continuous glucose monitors are super uh sort of common and um in say the the biohacking or other sort of cutting edge arenas of of health um but we know that expectation about a meal will affect blood sugar levels so there's been studies that where they gave participants the same drink twice and they also gave them the, the nutrition label and one said this is a low carb drink and the other one said this is a high carb drink it's the same drink after participants drank the high carb drink, they got a bigger spike in blood sugar because they were expecting there to be more carbohydrate in that drink. So if you have a continuous blood sugar monitor and you eat something that has a large amount of carbohydrate, you're going to think, hey, there's a lot of carbs in here. This is going to make my blood sugar spike. And it will, but not necessarily because of the carbohydrates in the meal. Um, and so this continuous stressing about these things. So if you like, and then you also see you know, people who are proponents of uh, continuous glucose monitors will be like posting on Instagram about, oh, I'm going to eat this cookie and oh, isn't it terrible, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then that stress is going to cause a, a spike in blood sugar, like regardless of, 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 of whether like what the carbs in the cookie are. So like this hyper focus, like what we think is going to happen directly affects our physiology in measurable ways. And the same thing happens with sleep, like regardless of how somebody slept, you can randomize them to be told that they slept well or they didn't sleep well. And those who are told that they didn't sleep well will perform cognitively worse because they think they didn't sleep well, regardless of how they actually slept. And so there's, there's all this stuff that comes out of the psych psychology literature that, that tells you that sometimes this sort of hyper-focus on these details is going to cause problems in itself, regardless of what's actually happening to the thing that you're measuring. Oh man. Yeah. This is part of the reason. Well, in addition to like the cost, right. Of getting like an aura ring or getting a, a continuous blood glucose monitor, but this has been part of the reason why I don't want to get it because I know if I'm already kind of orthorexic, it'll make yes. it, it'll make it worse or it has a potential to. And, 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 and again, the, the problem is that I think the majority of people who are interested in this stuff, like you are, like I am 
will have a tendency to become hyper-focused and obsessed in that way. So it's kind of like a, a self-reinforcing problem just because the, you know, the, the people who might benefit from, from a continuous glucose monitor, so, so say somebody who knows nothing about their blood sugar or their metabolic health, Right. Um, and you're trying to get them to understand the effect of food on their physiology because maybe that will help them, you know, adjust the quality of their diet slightly. You put you put a continuous glucose monitor on them for two weeks. They track their food. They say, oh, you know, hey, when I have rice, I get this big spike. So maybe, you know, maybe I should switch to a different, you know, starch source or carbohydrate source or, you know, right. a non-starchy vegetable or some more protein or something like that. I think that's really useful in that population. I don't think it's that useful in somebody like you or I because because of those those, those same issues. Right. No, absolutely. The placebo effect is important. I think that's sometimes overlooked. Yeah. No, and no SIBO in this, right? So right. it's the, the, right, right. the, the negative the negative side of that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I want to shift gears and talk about your um, the recent paper that you published um, called Reframing Nutritional Microbiota Studies to Reflect an Inherent Metabolic Flexibility of the Human Gut a narrative review focusing on high fat diets. So tell me a little bit about the background of the study and what questions you hope to address. Yeah, um, so this this is a really fun kind of side project. It's not really any part of my normal academic work, um, but the one of the authors, Lucy Mailing, uh, she has a, a, a PhD in the gut microbiota, essentially. And she is my like, go-to person on any, anything and everything gut related. So if you have gut health struggles, go and check out her blog. You know, maybe you want to consult with her. Um, just anybody who's listening, uh, she, she's fabulous. Um, but and so, she, and so as, as well as, you know, being actively involved in, in coaching and, and previously having done some research, she's, she does a lot of sort of synthesizing the gut microbiota research for practitioners, you know, um, functional medicines, physician, uh, physicians, um, and when you do that, it, you know, it's very useful. You can, you can write it in an accessible way. It goes on a blog post. It's free to, it's free to access, you know, people can, can actively use it. However, at the same time, I think it's also important to put that stuff into the academic literature because there are going to be other groups of people who don't necessarily appreciate what's being done sort of on the, on, on the ground. Um, right. And so I, you know when she when she when she puts together some of this stuff i encourage her hey let's 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 well for this scenario i encouraged her and say hey let's turn this into a paper you know a, a formal paper and so a lot of the re you know most of the research that's in there is based on work that she's done um and then at the same time uh she was contacted by a guy called jonathan scholl who's a, a philosopher of science and particularly interested in the philosophy of nutrition um, and actually, he said something similar to Lucy. He was like, hey, Lucy, you do all this great work. Let's turn it into a paper. So like, the three of us kind of then collaborated uh, in, in that process. And uh, Jonathan did most of the bulk of the, the writing of, 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 the, of the paper itself in, in the first instance. And the idea really was to get a more holistic view of what contributes to gut health from a nutritional standpoint and what we do and don't know um and in reality you know we're we're sort of told these these kind of tropes which is that fiber is essential um for a healthy gut um you know fat in general animal products are bad you know particularly if we're talking about risk of colorectal cancer and, and things like that um and when you then sort of dig into the literature 
you see that the evidence for that isn't great and it you know focuses on just very specific populations so like mice in general eat um a high carbohydrate diet and the strain of mouse in which the vast majority of all biomedical research is done it's called the black six um has been sort of bred over time to respond negatively to a high fat diet um and and so then this is the this is the context that we do a lot of work we put these mice that are bred to do you know bred to become fairly unhealthy on a high fat diet get obese and have all these other health issues and then we put them on a high fat diet and then we say this is good or bad for the gut and then we try and extrapolate that to humans why um, is that that they were um bred to do bad do poorly on a, a high fat diet because this is you know when you're trying to understand the effects of um diet on health mm-hmm. we have a rough idea so and so so, so the first problem and I, I think it's the first one we address in the paper is is what what is a high fat diet like what does that even mean right so so for a mouse a high fat diet is lard soybean oil and sucrose um sugar and protein usually from casein which is milk protein and so basically it's like cheesecake and coke but that's that's the high fat that's the high fat diet um and so just then saying right so this diet is high in fat and it's bad because it's high in fat well that's not really true because there's a lot of other aspects you know there's a huge amount of sugar that's coming along with that uh, in particular uh, right. so but it, it does approximate fairly well uh, a, a, an ultra-processed, highly refined Western diet, right? It does look like that. So when you're trying to see, you know, you know, how do humans nowadays eat, uh, which we know is negatively, you know, negatively affects our health. Uh, you know, this is what it looks like. Um, and then we want to have mice who respond in the way that we expect, you know, humans to kind of. Uh, you know they become obese and uh, get type 2 diabetes and all these things and so so that that kind of underlies why why that research environment exists however the problem then becomes when we extrapolate that out further right so calling that calling the cheesecake diet a high fat diet then automatically we think well then anything else that's high in fat must automatically be bad Um, and we do the same thing when we look at human nutrition and that's much trickier because in general humans don't remember what they eat uh, but when you ask them what they eat and then try and look at health aspects it becomes really difficult because the quality of the data is poor right. but we do the same thing so we kind of like lump all this stuff together so we you know we might say well those who eat um a you know a human high fat diet they're people who eat uh, pastries and cakes and cookies and red meat and high fat dairy or something and so mm-hmm. like there are so many different things in there so to kind of lump them together isn't really fair because you're then you're essentially saying that pastries and cookies have the same effect on health as red meat and we know that like just physically isn't going to be the case but that's how we lump them together in, in studies so really and, it, and it, it's exactly the same problem like we're, we're kind of taking all these different aspects of, of diet, some of which may be good, some of which may be bad, some of which may be neutral, kind of lumping them together and then expecting, you know, that they all have this, the same effect on health. So the high fat diet right. in, a, in a mouse definitely, you know, reflects, you know, cheesecake with a, with a side of Coke and that's fine. But that doesn't mean that if I say go on a ketogenic diet, which has some fatty red meat, lots of non-starchy vegetables, you know, that that is the same thing. 
whereas in the research they'd say that's the same thing but in reality it really isn't interesting so you mentioned a few problems one is that the mice generally their natural diet is a high carbohydrate diet and then yes. they're also bred to do poorly on a high fat diet and also the way that a high fat diet is defined is soybean oil lard refined sugar and so it's really a problem of oh and the questionnaires right that, that yields can yield some um, poor studies like the healthy user bias so it, it seems like there are so many confounding factors that we can't really say for certain which causes which. This show is brought to you by the Bio Optimizers. Now, specifically, I want to talk about their magnesium breakthrough formulation because this isn't any old magnesium. This is actually a very unique form. Now, I've tested virtually every form of magnesium from glycinate and oxide to magnesium L3 and 8 and citrate. So I know which ones have worked and which ones have been nothing more than an expensive laxative. And I can say without a doubt that the magnesium this company has is actually, as the name suggests, a breakthrough for magnesium. So I'm going to tell you why it's so important for the body. First, it works as a sort of anti-anxiolytic, which means that there's research which shows that it can help promote calm in the face of mental and emotional stress. There's actually an inverse relationship between the amount of stress that you have and the amount of magnesium in the body. In other words, the higher the stress, the less magnesium is found in the body. Now, it's also been found to have pretty remarkable effects on metabolic health. It's been shown to improve some blood markers like insulin, blood sugar, and even high blood pressure. And the problem is it's highly depleted from soils because of modern agricultural methods and pesticide use. And we're probably eating way more processed food than we usually do, and processed food, by definition, is refined and is missing some of those micronutrients. And finally, this form has all seven forms of supplemental magnesium. And it's important because different forms actually do different things in the body and can get absorbed better in different parts. So, since you've been listening to this podcast, BioOptimizers is offering 10% off using the link in the description now back to the show yeah yeah exactly and i think that the first part of the paper is really saying that you know hey to even understand the problem we need to be much better at the language that we use and at separating out different you know parts of the diet so when it comes to human studies don't don't put cookies and steaks in the same group because right. they are not going to have the same things on health and so that, that means that we don't even necessarily have the starting point that we want in order to answer these questions, right? So, so right. Kind of, you know, if, if, we're, if we're doing that, then we have to discount a lot of the research that's been done already. And then also changing the language like your high fat mouse diet should actually be, you know, a highly refined, high fat, high sugar diet, right? That's more right. accurate, right? So even just changing our language, becoming more precise is important. Um, and then sort of later on, um, in the paper, one of the things that we, we, we cover is the fact that is, is that idea about fiber and short chain fatty acids being critical for, for normal gut function. Um, and so, you know, the, the story is that you eat lots of fiber, um, bacteria in the gut, turn it into short chain fatty acids like butyrate. Butyrate is then used as a fuel source by the epithelial uh, cells uh, in, in the gut. And that is true. That, that that does happen, right? That we're, we're not we're not saying that's not true. Uh, however, in some scenarios, uh, say if you have a lot of inflammation in the gut, 
your guts, your gut epithelial cells become less good at taking up butyrate fr from the gut, right? So then it's kind of, you almost have this self-propelling problem because, you know, even if the butyrate is there, they can't use it. Um, at the same time, you see that, that actually there are a number of different things that could be used uh, by those same cells as well as butyrate. So um, if you, there's, so, so we, we, we cite a study where they put people on, on either a low fat plant-based diet or um, you know, a higher fat animal-based diet. And when you go on the, the higher fat, you know, low carbohydrate animal-based diet, you see a shift uh, in what's produced so you don't get these normal short chain fatty acids you get these iso short chain fatty acids like isobutyrate um but that can have the same effect or can actually be more potent um in terms of activating some of the the beneficial pathways in the gut um and we also know that that gut cells can use uh, circulating ketones not from inside the gut but from the blood you know from the peripheral circulation so if, if you're on a ketogenic diet making ketones your gut cells can then use that instead of the butyrate that you might get from the gut. Um, and then finally, there's also uh, some evidence that they can use uh, acylcarnitines, which is basically um, a, a certain amount of fatty acid uh, attached to an acyl, an acyl group. So they can actually directly use some, some fats as well for energy. So like this, this is basically all going, you know, lots of biochemistry to, to say that, you know, what we're told that the gut needs it's just much more complex than that and you know it, right. it makes perfect it makes perfect sense because if you required a significant amount of fiber to always have a healthy gut right just think about humans as they evolved they just we had to be really good at dealing with a wide range of food sources and sometimes not having any food at all so if you want your gut to remain healthy in the absence of food it has to be able to survive on something else. And that is going to be ketones from the, the peripheral circulation. Um, or, you know, when, when humans migrated up into, into Northern Europe, right? There just aren't very many starchy carbohydrates in Northern Europe in the middle of winter. Um, yet our guts functioned just fine. And so it's just trying to say that there are multiple different pathways through which the gut can be healthy, multiple things that the gut can metabolize. And that suggests that the gut is inherently what we call metabolically flexible. So right. depending on what you have available, your gut should be able to shift its metabolism to be able to retain some kind of overall semblance of health and good function. Um, and then also adapt, right? With, with seasons, you can go from having, you know, only meat or animal-based foods in the winter again. So we're thinking about Northern Europe and I do that just because that's where we see really big shifts in the foods that are available. Um, doesn't it could be any 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 sort of more northern part of the northern hemisphere it could be uh, or, or southern or southern part of the southern hemisphere right it goes in both directions mm -hmm. um, and you know we see big shifts across a season like so there may be some maybe lots of berries and fruit in the summer but that isn't there in the winter so we should we have to be able to adapt and that is one of the reasons why humans uh, took over the world as we did is because we are hugely adaptable um, so, so I think that the main problem, again, just stems from the fact that we've, we've got this very narrow view of what's required for gut function. And then anything that deviates from that we think is pathological. But that, to me, that doesn't make any sense because as humans, we have to be able to deal and be healthy uh, in you know, a much wider range of food environments. And that's obviously what we see during human evolution. So then we can't 
you know, you know, we can't discount that when we're then looking at gut health and, and what might, might be required for that. Right. No, absolutely. And there's actually, um, I think it was a relatively recent paper by Dr. Bendor, which I think actually Dr. Saladino uh, interviewed him. Mm -hmm. And it suggested that we evolved for a pretty large part of our evolutionary history as kind of uh, specific or specialized omnivores where we mostly ate a lot of meat. And yeah, I think that's so important. Like we are so adaptable. That is literally what makes us human, I think, the, the, our ability to adapt to different um, fuel substrates. So uh, do you think that maybe saying like fiber is good, like just that as a blanket statement is is flawed? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it has to be really yeah. because it doesn't mean it's bad, right? right. But it just like saying that it's universally good and universally essential like we have evidence that, that that just isn't true. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I'm not a fan of fiber. Like, you know, right. I think most people should eat vegetables, but mm -hmm. right. That, you know, there, there are scenarios where, where, you know, taking them out of the diet has dramatic effects on health. And we have to include that in, in our model. Um, you know, sort of like a mental right. model about what's, what, what, what contributes to health. And it's interesting because I think that, you know, so yeah, there's Mickey Bendor's paper. And then afterwards there was a paper that came out talking, you know, which said, well, actually, you know, starch was a really, a really important part of human evolution and brain development. And we've gone back and forth, right? And some people are saying, you know, meat or seafood is critical to brain development. Other people were saying that starch is a critical to, to brain development. We definitely know that cooking was, was an important development because that increases um, the bioavailability of the, the macronutrients and micronutrients within the food. And that's the case for both animal and plant-based foods. Um, right. But, you know, and so then... Then I just saw a nice comment uh, from, from Mickey, which said, hey, we never said that starch wasn't an important source of food, right? Humans have eaten starch, right? Just because you say that animal products are important for our, for our evolution doesn't mean that other sources aren't. And so everybody wants to everybody wants to create what I call these false dichotomies, right? It's either this or it's this. Well, yes. like, hey, you know, what about it being both? Because we again, if we go back to the environments that humans have thrived in, the foods and the macronutrients and you know all the other things that contribute are hugely different so then assuming that each of us requires exactly the same food or other environment just doesn't make any sense right yeah it's it's kind of crazy that there's so much black and white thinking even amongst highly educated scientists researchers doctors like i know there's you know people like dr michael greger uh you know, um, Dean Ornish, uh, uh, Dr. Esselstyn, and they, there's also people on the other side of the spectrum, I think too, right? Like the, where ketogenic diet is the only solution or low carb diet is the only solution. And I guess my question is, why do you think that that occurs even in people who are very, very educated? So, I mean, there's, there's a number of potential region, uh, reasons. A lot of it stems um, from the way that we make decisions and then the the importance of a tribe and an and the requirement of an enemy for us to to come together right so the way humans make decisions is that um we we make a decision based on emotion and then we try and find evidence to support the decision that we've already made right so, uh, michael uh, michael grieger talks about his grandmother who had lots of chronic diseases went on a plant-based diet you know dramatically improved her health 
live to a long, healthy age. I can't remember how old. This creates this storyline that this is the important thing, right? And then you find all the evidence that's, that supports that. Um, and then I also believe that with his patients, he sees significant improvements in their health, right? If you go on a low-fat plant-based diet, for most people, that dramatically improves the quality of their diet. And they're probably going to do a whole host of other things that support their, their, their health as well. So I am not discounting that. I Whole food plant-based diets that of high-quality foods, absolutely on a list of potentially beneficial you know, tools in your dietary toolbox. Um, at the same time, right, if, if, that, if that's the storyline, then you gather a tribe of like-minded people around you, and then you have to have something to work against, like dietary fat is going to raise your cholesterol and cause heart disease, right? That right, just comes right, up right. again and again and again and again. Um, and, but then it goes, but then, like you said, it goes, it goes the other way. So, like, we certainly have uh, keto protagonists who are like, carbohydrates are addictive and they cause type 2 diabetes. And, you know, as long as you take them out, you know, you can have as much fat as you like, um, and the, the quality of your diet doesn't matter as long as there's no carbs in it. Um, and, and again, yeah. I have see, physically seen that dramatically improve people's health. But to then say, well, fiber is bad for you and, you know, plants are trying to kill you and uh, carbs cause diabetes, that is demonstrably not true in the majority of cases. So right. uh, again, it just comes back to our, I think our desire. Well, so, so we see something working, it works for us, it works for somebody else, it works for our patients then it becomes a very, um, you know, that, that's, that's very compelling. And then you find reasons to support that. And then to justify, continue to justify it, you have to have, find flaws in the alternative. Um, right. And then that, that's part of creating a, creating a tribe, which is, you know, we're social beings. It's very important to us. Um, however, when, when like I have worked with people and I've, I've seen people thrive and fail at every different part of that spectrum. So I, I, I can't pick a side because there isn't a side for me to pick because right. I've, you know, I've, I've seen it all work and I've seen it all fail. And I think that's the answer. Um, but it's a much harder story to tell. Yeah. I mean, so what I'm hearing and what I've really also seen too in myself and friends and family members is that it's bio-individuality is the name of the game, I think. And when we try to say, plant-based diet is the human, uh, you know, uh, species appropriate diet, or when we say a carnivore diet is species appropriate diet, I think it goes back to the fact that we're highly adaptable species. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, I guess the problem is that we, we don't currently have a good way of saying, hey, for you, this is what a good diet is going to be your, you know, species or like, then we have right. to get like, right, it's no, it's no longer species, we have to get like into what in, a, in an animal you'd call a strain or something right and you know this gets really really problematic when we try yes. to figure that out um but you know you might have some idea right so we know you know important to cover here right now like race is a social construct right and it's 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 not real it's not by it's not biological it's not it doesn't determine genetic um you know susceptibility or preference to any given diet and or any given right. disease or anything like that. Um, but you could think about, right, so my most recent ancestors in the last thousand years, uh, right, and within races, those could come from very different places in, in, on the planet, which is mm -hmm. really important to take into, into consideration. But so you could think, you know, for, for you as an individual, your most recent ancestors, what environment did they, you know, e exist in? You know, and what you know right. what environment had their ancestors 
evolved in. And so for me, it's a fairly easy thing to do because most of my ancestors spent a long time in Northern Europe, right? Just like, I'm, just like I mentioned, I use myself as an example because it's an easy example to give, right? And so then significant amounts of starchy carbohydrates, probably not something that my ancestors were exposed to a lot of. And so right. maybe, maybe I would do better on a lower carbohydrate, higher protein diet. And in general, I have, I have seen that. Um, but, you know, if your ancestors lived close to the equator, right, more starchy carbohydrates, more sugar available, more of the year round. And so maybe you do better on a, on a diet like that. Um, then, of course, as our um, world population has increasingly intermingled, which is a fabulous thing, that becomes really hard because what if you had uh, your ancestors who were in Northern Europe and in, in Costa Rica, right on the equator, yeah. um, it becomes really difficult and I don't yes. have a good answer for you. And, and you know, you, you're going to have to do a little bit of, of uh, a self-experimentation. Yeah, I think, yeah, I was going to ask you that at the end, but um, I guess like, what do you think we can do other than, you know, self-experimentation, I guess, um, is obviously an important part of it, but are there like certain testing methods that you prefer in order to try to, you know, tease that out? Uh, not really. Um, so, well, I mean, if we're, if we're talking testing in terms of like blood tests, maybe some blood sugar monitoring, how do you respond to certain foods? I mentioned that I think for, for some people that is, that is useful. Um, right. And one thing that we do know about blood sugar in particular, just because it's the one that's been researched the most is that, for two given individuals, they will respond to the same food very differently from, from a blood sugar standpoint. Um, and, you know, multiple different things come into that, the their current gut microbiota, the context of the meal, right? Is it breakfast? Is it lunch? Have you exercised? How do you sleep? You know, there's a genetic component that we don't fully understand yet, but it does seem to affect things. You know, what's your overall metabolic health and blood sugar regulation like? Like that seems to really change mm -hmm. how you respond to, to, a, to a given uh, carbohydrate. So, so all of that's important, but the problem is that for an individual, you probably don't have all of that data. So some blood sugar monitoring is probably a good start uh, as well as, you know, just like some basic blood tests. Like you can get uh, a CM, a comprehensive metabolic panel. You can do a, a complete uh, blood count um, you can do uh, some basic lipid, you know, tests, you know, cholesterol and that kind of stuff. Um, blood, blood sugar metrics like fasting, glucose, HbA1c. Um, and that probably gives you an idea of your overall health and then says, well, what, what you're currently eating is that kind of sub, su supporting that. And then maybe you can change something and you can, you can retest those things. And all those things are pretty easy and, and, and cheap uh, to get. Um, if I was going to take somebody who I knew nothing about and wanted to try and predict what diet they're going to do best on right now i think that is physically completely impossible gotcha okay yeah no that's fascinating stuff and i actually recently interviewed someone who is very um involved with nutrigenomics research and that's i mean in its infancy but i think once that gets more developed that'll be pretty fascinating to be able to test your dna and be able to help you out at least um and helping you aid to what diet you want yeah so the it, it, it's like nutrigenomics is something that I believe will one day be useful. Right, right. now, if if you see a product on the market that says, "Hey, we can test your DNA and what diet, and then tell you what diet you should eat," that is not true. Nobody can do that. So if they're telling you they can do that, they are lying, or they are misinterpreting or overinterpreting the available data. Um, I think we may get there one day, but we cannot do that right now. 
Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's exactly what he said. He said it can give you a general framework from which to start. But at the end of the day, it's it's what you just said. It's testing, experimenting, retesting, and then, you know, trying to um, make shifts in diet and then retesting again. That seems to be the method. I, I would personally argue that knowing the genetics doesn't help you at all. Because, really? be, because you're going to make changes based on the physical outcome, what I call what, you know, the phenotype, like how your blood sugar responds, how your blood right. tests respond. Um, and so knowing the genetics doesn't make any difference because what you're going to make changes on are these other things. So I would okay. argue that that's $300 you don't need to spend. Um, and you can, <laughs> you can uh, just do it, the, do it the free way. Okay, very that's interesting. My, that's, my, that's my personal opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to get back to your paper. Um, so I recently had, well, not that recently, a couple of months ago, Dr. Marvin Singh, who's a gut microbiome expert on the podcast, and he seemed to think that, you know, the microbiome is so complex that it doesn't seem to be hackable with specific mm -hmm. food substrates. And also in the paper, you mentioned that um, there is not really a well-established definition of what is considered a healthy gut microbiome. Um, but this goes in contrary to actually someone, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Um, his name is Joel Green. And he actually is, I guess, becoming more well-known for protocols which aim to target specific gut microbiome or gut bacteria. Mm. So do you share Dr. Singh's viewpoint? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. And if you... Yeah. Um, in general, just like, uh, so, so like we were just talking about nutrigenomics. If you go to an academic geneticist and you say, hey, based on this one SNP, I'm going to recommend that somebody eats this diet, they will laugh you out of the room. They know that that is completely, like, that is completely nonsensical. You know, they'll say that, you know, single SNPs cannot tell you anything about somebody's health or lifestyle or anything else, what they should do. Uh, and I, I think the microbiota research is in exactly the same place. Okay. If you went to you know, a true microbiota or microbiome researcher and you said, researcher and you said, Hey, I think if I can increase or decrease this bug, I'm going to have this effect on health. They will like, again, they just will not take you seriously. They will laugh you out of the room because they will, for every attempt that you do to do that, there is a paper that says that the opposite will happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the key, like ketogenic diet research on, on the gut microbiota, um, there's one very well-cited study, we included it in the paper, that said that, that so they took mouse models of epilepsy, they put those mice on a ketogenic diet, and they saw an increase in uh, uh, a, a bacteria called Akkermansia mucinophilia, which is um, probably well-known as, as being important for like degrading and maintaining the mucin layer of the gut. Um, so they saw an increase of that with the ketogenic diet, um, and then when they actually gave that bug as like a probiotic, it had the same effect. So it had this reduction in, in seizures in these epilepsy models. However, in an autism model uh, in the mouse, they put the mice on a ketogenic diet and they saw improvements again in mm -hmm. sort of autism-like behaviors in these mice. But with that came a dramatic decrease in Akkermansia mucinophilia, despite the fact that these were put on essentially the same ketogenic diet. Um, and so when you look at... Um, which bugs go up and down in, again, in sort of animal studies on a given diet, say a ketogenic diet, there's a review paper that came out recently that basically said, we don't know. Like in some models, it's going to go up and in some models, it's going to go down. And usually you see a benefit regardless of, of the shift. Um, and so like there are, the, 
for everything that we think, everything that we're told about the gut microbiota, there is an exact um, example that, that discounts it. So um, we think that alpha diversity, right, just the diversity of the gut microbiota in general is better for health. But in some conditions like Graves' disease, which is a, an autoimmune hyperthyroidism, those patients seem to have a dramatically increased diversity in the gut, which is associated with the disease. Um, in some cases, we think there were, there were some bugs that were beneficial. So like in athletes, we have a lot more Prevotella, uh, which is part of like the adaptation to the gut, particularly in endurance athletes. But in rheumatoid arthritis patients, they also have more Prevotella, right? And that's associated with disease. Um, so like, if, if you think that you know how the gut is going to respond and whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Again, I just, I, I don't think you fully understand the current scope of the research. Wow. So basically, whether you have a different model, so if you have someone or, you know, a, a mice model of autism versus a mice model of, um, you know, epilepsy and epileptic seizures, the composition of the microbiome, regardless of if they both show positive results, could be different. Oh yeah. Oh my God. In, to the same, to the same diet. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and then we don't, and look, right. Then we're only just beginning to look at how these things happen in humans. Right. So like right. You're, you're, first of all, you're extrapolating a huge amount of rodent data to humans, which is not necessarily the best thing to do. And I say that, right. I'm, I am a professional rodent researcher, right. This is what I do in my day job. And I will tell you that rodents are not mini humans for mm -hmm. the vast majority of stuff that we use them to, to research. Um, so that, first of all, that, that's a big problem. And then, you know, when we're looking at how the gut microbiota shifts in the human in response to something, we're only just starting to do that, right? Clinical trials where we do something and then we test the gut microbiota. And then the question is, are we even looking at the right thing? So most microbiota sequencing uses something called 16S amplicon sequencing. Um, and that gives you an idea of the species you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe a rough idea, probably more just like the genus of, of mm. like the, the, the broad groups of the bacteria. Whereas you need to do like shotgun sequencing plus metabolomics plus transcriptomics to understand not only what is the, what, what are the species, the exact species, and maybe even the strains of the different species of, of the bugs, which is a, a level of detail that we don't have. But you also need to know what are they actually doing? Because right. you know the what's not what's much more important than the bug itself is what it's physically doing. So you could have different bugs in widely you know widely different species or in different genuses that are having the same physiological effects. Right, they're producing the same metabolites or they're supporting gut function in the same way. Um, so you really need to be looking at function of the bacteria rather than just like what bacteria are there. And you know we don't have that level of detail in the vast majority of studies. So again, you know, doing 16S amplicon sequencing on a patient after they go on a specific diet and thinking that you really know what those bugs are doing, like that's just, you, you don't. Um, and that's, it, it, it's just the, the, the state of the science where they are. You know, I'm not a microbiota expert. I do happen to know people who are, uh, and I absolutely trust, you know, what, what they know about the research and what they've shown me. And that's just, right, you have to, the, the most important part of any scientific endeavor is acknowledging the limitations and, you know, to the degree that we can, the known unknowns. And, you know, all of the things I just mentioned right now really are unknown. 
Yeah, you know, there seem to be several papers um, about Acromantia municifila, which I wanted to ask you about, which suggests that they have, so just the presence of them doesn't really, like you said, it doesn't tell you whether it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing because Acromantia yeah. um, can feed on prebiotic fiber, but from my understanding, it can also start to feed on the mucus layer itself. So, you know, can you explain the importance, first of all, of the gut mucus layer? Um, and then if fiber is really required to feed that acromancia? Yeah. So the, the short answer to your question is, I don't know, because yeah. I don't think, and not because I don't know, I think it's because it is not known. Right. Um, and the, so, so right, the importance of the, the, the mucus, right? So any of these tissues that we have exposed to the outside environment that are not the skin, um, although actually, I mean, the gut is a continuation of the skin. You're like an inside out tube, mm-hmm. right? It sort of like just continues from the outside and inside and all the way around. Um, but, you know, so like the eyes and the mouth and uh, the genital tract and the gut, um, you need some mucus to protect against the outside uh, environment. That's the simplest way to think of it. Mucus is incredibly important. Um, and so in the gut, you know, it helps sort of maintain that lining and a barrier of protection against the outside world, you know, so like stuff that is inside your gut is technically the outside world compared to the body. Um, but, you know, they've done some, some studies, you know, where, you know, if you have mice that are sort of humanized from their gut microbiota, so you call them notobiotic mice. Um, so they're mice, but they have more of a human type uh, microbiota. Um, you know, particularly and then you, when you do that, you have to like just use specific strains because you can't perfectly mimic the human microbiota because like you said, any two people will only have about a third of an overlap of their gut microbiota and any two healthy people may have no overlap whatsoever, right? This kind of brings us to the point where it says right. that I can't tell you what's a, what a health, healthy gut microbiota is. That's sort of like one of the points they make in the paper. Um, but anyway, so like some studies, where if you go on a low fiber or a low carb diet, uh, they they think they show that the acromantia then starts to eat into the mucus lining, which, you know, if the mucus is good, then, um, it, you know, that might be detrimental because you're, you're removing some of that protective barrier. There right. are other studies, you know, in similar models that, that haven't shown that. Um, and, and you don't really see that in, in humans necessarily who go on um, lower fiber or more animal-based diets so when you pick a very specific model in animals um then you might see some of these shifts but how that actually relates to humans we don't know is it a good thing is it a bad thing is more acromantia important for you to benefit from your ketogenic diet is less like i said i have examples of both um and so yes we know it's an important um component of the gut microbiota we know that it responds to diet but how it responds to diet is very difficult to predict um and we also don't know whether it's uniformly good uniformly bad its presence doesn't necessarily mean anything right so if you imagine right if you put humans into a given environment um i could you know live as part of the land you know be very careful about my footprint you know just take take what i need and and replenish and be restorative and regenerative or i could strip mine that whole thing um start burning fossil fuels destroy the environment right Mm -hmm. but i'm i'm still a human right i am exactly the same species um and 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 i think that you have to think about the gut microbiota the same way like just knowing the species doesn't know anything about its function how it's interacting with the environment you know how it's sort of supporting or or you know 
being for or against gut health. Like, we still just don't know that yet. Yeah, that's fascinating because in the paper, you also mentioned something that I didn't know. Um, bifidobacteria, which is, you know, something that I think is touted as being very beneficial in, mm -hmm. in all cases sometimes, isn't found in the Hadza population. And they're really healthy, right? Yeah. And, and, and so, right, there's, there's two sides of this. One is that, um, you know, we could say, well, hey, there's no bifidobacteria in the Hadza. The Hadza are super healthy. Therefore, bifidobacteria are bad or we don't need them right right uh or you know in an alternative setting right in in uh adult humans in the western food environment we do think those who have more bifidobacteria are generally healthier um and you know that's a bi-directional thing um and so right then we would say well all you know bifidobacteria are super important we want to increase that you know in the population we're working with, which is 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 people in, in the Western environment. So, but like, who knows? Like in, in some scenarios, yes, they're potentially good. They are butyrate producers, right? We think that's gonna support, right? They, they break down um, uh, fiber and that's gonna produce, you know, metabolites that our gut uh, uh, epithelial cells are gonna like. Uh, but in some populations that are healthy, they don't have them. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a big problem when we say that this is or isn't required for gut health, just like we say, all right, this, so they use that, that like um, hunter-gatherer groups like the Haz, uh, Hadza to say, you see how much fiber these guys eat? You should eat that much fiber. Um, and well, there's two sides of that. One is that, you know, you probably wouldn't, you know, because of the environment that you've been in or your, you know, your ancestors have been in for the last, you know, how many hundred, hundreds or thousands of years, you probably couldn't tolerate a, a lot of the, the, that, that same dietary approach. Uh, but equally, a lot of the fiber that the had to eat, they then spit out because they just like chew it up. Um, they don't swallow it. And, and so like the amount that's going into their mouths is not necessarily the amount that ends up um, in their guts. Right. So as ever, it's a, it's a much more complex um, story than we're usually told. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the paper, you actually mentioned four possible concerns with uh, low carbohydrate and animal based diets. I don't think we'll be able to get through all of them, but I want to attempt to maybe highlight the most important takeaways. You mentioned hydrogen sulfide, lipopolysaccharides, uh, TMAO and bile acids. Could you start with hydrogen sulfide? Yes. So um, hydrogen sulfide is um, what what we might call a, a gasotransmitter. So it's an important um, it's an important molecule for regulating metabolism, you know, as, and so like, and gases that do that. So like CO2, uh, uh, nitric oxide, oxygen, hydrogen sulfide, they're, you know, in this sort of gasotransmitter group. Um, and some amounts are produced in normal healthy metabolism and, and they are, it's an active signaling molecule. Um, however, there are certain subsets of gut pathologies associated with an overabundance of, um, of bacteria that produce um, hydrogen sulfide. So what is sometimes called hydrogen sulfide dominant SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And those bacteria that produce a lot of hydrogen sulfide really love high fat, high protein diets. Um, so the one scenario where you might want to avoid that kind of diet is in that is in that scenario, right? So if somebody has a lot of hydrogen sulfide producers, then maybe a lower fat, higher fiber diet is, is, is a better approach. 
uh, and certainly, you know, sort of practitioners have been doing that and seeing seeing benefit there. So that's like one potential. That's one potential downside. Um, the other thing. Um, which I've had to change my mind on over the years is, 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 the, is the LPS, the lipopolysaccharide. Um, and I used to be very worried about that in a certain subset of ketogenic dieters, and which is still possible. Um, but basically, lipopolysaccharides are what we call endotoxins. They sit inside the bacterial cell wall and they are transported across the gut, uh, in particular with fat, you know, into chylomicrons. Um, and so I certainly have had a subset of, of clients and athletes who would go on a ketogenic diet and like they'd slam a big bulletproof coffee and like all of a sudden they just like feel super brain foggy and they wouldn't feel very good. And my theory was that this was a load of life polysaccharide just like coming across the gut wall. Um, however, um, not all LPSs are bad. In fact, the majority are maybe useful. Like they help tell the immune system, hey, this is what's in the gut. This is what to expect. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? So they can be immunomodulatory rather than inflammatory. Um, yes. And then also it's probably safer to absorb LPS as part of that fat absorption system because then that shuttles it to the liver where it gets um, basically broken down and metabolized, gets removed rather than say, if you had a damaged gut lining, uh, and this stuff is just coming across, you know, in an unregulated manner. Um, so as long as your gut is functioning normally, this is probably not a bad thing. But if you have, um, you know, some gut pathology, it's possible that it's still problematic. Um, but alongside that, kind of like I mentioned earlier, and this is another point that sort of made towards the end of the paper, is that if you have you know, significant gut inflammation. So if you say you have inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or something like that, you may not be as good at utilizing the butyrate that your gut bacteria produce. So you may instead benefit from ketones coming from the circulation. So then in that scenario, maybe a ketogenic diet is beneficial because you can actually better support the metabolism of um, your, your gut uh, sort of cells. So, so that, 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 that's, that, that's an option too. So again, um, it's, it's complicated, but you know, depending on the person in front of you and gut pathology is very common. And so even somebody with the same symptoms may have very different things going on. And so then different dietary strategies are, are potentially going to be useful in those different scenarios. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it, with the, um, in the case of lipopolysaccharides, if you have something like, you know, leaky gut intestinal permeability, that could be potentially problematic. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it seems to be potentially bi-directional. So if okay. you look at people who have insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, the more, like, the worse that disease and the more uh, symptoms or diagnostic criteria they have of metabolic syndrome, which includes uh, high blood pressure, high triglycerides, high blood sugar, low HDL cholesterol. The more of those you have, the more circulating endotoxin you see uh, in, the, in those people. So um, it could be, it's probably a bit of both directions, right? So if, right. If, you, if you have worse metabolic health, you have worse gut health, more of these mm -hmm. endotoxins are making their way into the circulation. And then once they're there, they can create an inflammatory response that then maybe worsens metabolic health. So there's kind of like a, a bit of a feed forward um, uh, effect there. So, so yes, uh, and this is what some people call metabolic endotoxemia, like an association between the amount of endotoxin you have circulating and your metabolic health. Um, like what's chicken and what's egg, difficult to tell, but there, there's probably some, uh, probably some uh, interaction there. Uh, but but any, anything that improves metabolic health automatically improves gut health, which then also reduces uh, endotoxemia. 
Um, so, so, and so like if you have type two diabetes, you may have a lot of endotoxin, you may go on a ketogenic high fat diet. And even though that's potentially bringing more endotoxin across at the same time, you're improving metabolic health for a whole load of other reasons, which is going to improve gut health, which then is going to reduce your, your LPS load. So even though some of those things seem potentially contradictory, you know, as, you know, if you, wherever you can make some, some headway in terms of improving health, that will automatically improve everything else. So yeah, that, that's a common theme that I think I've been saying since I started this podcast. And I wanted to get guests who share that because I think it's so true that you know, if you fix one thing, it's likely that it's probably going to fix a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. And both like from a physiological standpoint, but also we know that as humans, if we start to do more things that support our health, we will have more motivation and commitment to do other things, right? So we know that people right. who quit smoking are more likely to exercise or people who do more exercise are more likely to quit smoking or people who do more exercise are more likely to improve the quality of their diet um, or right. the quality of their sleep. Um, so like just saying that it was this one thing that, that fixed it, um, isn't necessarily true because all those other things then start to come with it. Could you touch on quickly TMAO and bile acids? Yeah, so a TMAO um, is this uh, breakdown product from uh, carnitine. So again, largely found in, in animal foods. Um, and it's associated with cardiovascular disease and um, high blood pressure, maybe insulin resistance. Um, and it's, it's really, it, it, the, the problem is that it's really complicated. So they have shown that your gut microbiota determines whether your TMAO goes up or down in response to a certain meal. Um, sorry, TMAO is, a, is, is, is not, uh, choline is the, is the important precursor for TMAO. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, it, so it, it, it partly depends on the gut microbiota in, and so, and it also partly depends on the form that it comes in, right? So I think there was a recent study where they gave people like whole eggs versus isolated choline as a supplement. And the mm -hmm. eggs, despite being the same amount of choline, the eggs didn't cause an increase in TMAO, but the isolated choline did. So like, it's not just the nutrient, it's the, it's the context that comes in. Um, and so like in general, if you're looking at uh, red meat or, or animal-based foods, you think you, we think we see more TMAO after, after, um, after a meal. And that's, you know, in animal models, more TMAO is associated with cardiovascular disease, obesity, insulin resistance. Um, however, you also get big fat spikes in TMAO after eating a, you know, certain types of seafood. And we also think that seafood in general is protective for cardiovascular disease. So there right. is a, there's a mixed picture there. Um, there's also been some recent Mendelian randomization studies that suggest TMAO is basically just along for the ride um, and it's insulin resistance that increases TMAO and then insulin resistance causes cardiovascular disease and then TMAO and cardiovascular disease look linked when actually it's insulin resistance that's the common factor. Um, there are some, so I actually got at least one email after the paper came out where somebody sent me like, well, here are all these other reasons why TMAO may still be bad. I'm not like saying that, it, that, 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 that we know the answer, and actually, a lot of the paper is not us saying, hey, we don't know the answer. It's us saying, hey, we really don't know the answer because actually there's, there's here stuff on both sides. So don't say that this stuff is inherently bad when actually here's some stuff that says that that's not the case. That was kind of the goal of a lot of the paper. Right. Um, and we also know, finally, that in uh, people who eat uh, more animal-based diets, potentially they are better at metabolizing and breaking down TMAO so that it's not problematic. So then... Um, 
it kind of again depends on what was the dietary context before that food came into your gut in the first place so a we don't necessarily know the link between tmao and disease outcomes and b it's going to be highly dependent on how the precursors arrive and your gut health and physical health you know before then so it's just not as simple as saying this is good or bad yeah again i think that's a major theme of this episode it's right adaptability and do what you know do what works for you because it likely isn't what works for you know your friend or your sister your brother your mom or your dad yeah and it's it's um and 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 so like we haven't really touched a lot on balasses but essentially the storyline is the same right some people will say right eating more fat results in release of more bile acids there's a storyline that it has a negative effect on the gut but actually there's lots of evidence to suggest that actually uh bile can have bile acids can have beneficial effects um on the gut and on gut health and again i think this is part of the flexibility of the gut right as soon as you if you dramatically change the food that's going in you're going to get a shift in the microbiota you're going to get a shift in the production of different metabolites like whether it's short chain fatty acids versus iso uh iso uh short chain fatty acids or you're producing ketones in the body um or you know more bile acids come in because it's it's higher fat and all of this is just is just the microbiota and the gut metabolism shifting to accommodate this new diet that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad we just think it's bad because it's a shift from what's happening in the average quote-unquote healthy person um so um like like we could have kind of said in general um it's 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 very much a case of what works for one person isn't going to work for somebody else and i know that that's frustrating right we want to know that we have the answers um but at least for me i I think it's more interesting right if we if we actually had the answers that you know we wouldn't there's a famous quote from albert einstein which is uh if we knew what we were doing it wouldn't be called research um and that basically sort of informs uh, a lot of how i work with stuff yeah no i mean that that's absolutely the case i think like we've said i'm starting to sound like a broken record but it's yeah it tends to never be black or white um but within that i did want to ask you what are some of the things that seem to be more definitive in terms of improving your gut health and improving your metabolic health yeah uh yes so kind of just to quickly step outside of the dutch stuff you know the well so so diet is is one and we can we can come back to it um but i think there are there are five critical things that are that essentially support overall human health and they are they are diet sleep and circadian rhythm um movement uh uh, stress mitigation uh be that mindfulness meditation yoga something you know prayer any of those and then social connection and then obviously stress reduction and social connection can be intertwined uh, because the things that you do socially you know can help to mitigate stress but like those are the things uh the critical components of pretty much every um kind of corner of alternative health be it integrative medicine functional medicine um lifestyle medicine you know though all of those things even though they all pretend to be different the reasons why they're not in my mind and why they're all generally often very successful is because they focus on those those five things um diet then becomes one of the things that is done differently across those different groups so lifestyle medicine seems to be unfortunately uh sort of nailed onto a low fat uh, plant-based diet and that's especially in the u.s they're like if you do lifestyle medicine, it's got to come with a low-fat plant-based diet, right? Um, which I, I don't think is true. Um, and there are others who ag- agree with that. But 
the important thing from a dietary standpoint, both from metabolic health, uh, gut health, is to just improve the quality of your diet, right? If you move from a highly refined, ultra-processed Western diet that's full of refined starches, refined sugars, refined oils, and you move it to a diet that includes whole foods, you know, that look a lot more like the food was on the plant or on the animal, um, and that can be, you know, every, it can include everything, eggs, dairy, meat, fish, vegetables, legumes, um, you know, all of those things, you know, grains, you know, all of that comes under there as long as you've improved the, the, the quality of the diet overall. Um, and so, again, what seems to tie together success in ketogenic diets, paleo diets, um, the DASH diet, Mediterranean diet, uh, the uh, plant-based diets, is in all of those where you see sustained success, you've, you've, you've improved the quality of the diet, um, right? And you've moved towards more um, whole foods, for, for want of a better word. So, so that I think is critical and that's what explains most of the benefit it, you know, across the dietary spectrum. Yeah, amazing. Now, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, so I probably post most frequently on Instagram. Um, I'm at Dr. Tommy Wood. I don't post that frequently, though. Like, some, like if something, uh, an interesting study or something I'm thinking about comes up, you'll get a post. Sometimes it's just me posting pictures of my dogs or me in the gym in my stories. Um, but I do try and answer every DM that I get. So if you have a burning question, you know, please feel free to, to, to find me there. Um, I do have a website which hasn't been updated in a long time, but you'll find like my CV and all my publications and stuff like that. It's uh, drragnar.com, D-R-R-A-G-N-A-R.com. Um, and, and so, yeah, if, you, if you're more interested in like my academic work and, and all that stuff, then, then, then head there. But my, my more recent papers that are sort of generally related to uh, human health, like this one, the gut microbiome, so that will also end up on, on Instagram. So you'll see updates there. Great. And I'll have links to those uh, in the description and in the show notes. Uh, now, to finish off, I usually do a couple of rapid fire questions. So first all right. of all, what is the most important habit that you personally do every day to support your health? Uh, coffee first thing? No. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I move every day. Like that, that's, it, it, it's a non-negotiable for me. And what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? <laughs> girls don't care if you have a six pack <laughs> in general all girls that do aren't girls that you want to be trying to chase down anyway there you go <laughs> awesome i really appreciate your time uh thank you very much for coming on the show this was incredibly valuable i learned a lot yeah uh, thanks a real pleasure to be here um thanks for having me on if you like this episode and if you'd like some of my other episodes with other guests please take the time to review this podcast on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful to me and getting this message out to way more people.